forgive me for running off the- Hello and welcome to episode 216 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today on the podcast, we welcome Jake Brennan. I have wanted Jake on the podcast for years. You may know him from his podcast, Spaceland, or a member of the band Cast Iron Hike. He also started Double Elvis, a podcast network that I am a part of. So full disclosure, we are partners. That being said, probably had Jake on my wish list since I started the podcast. So we get a lot into about intention, what drives creators like Jake and others. And he is in such a great place doing something that he loves. And it came out of love. We discuss Fugazi, storytelling, origins, and of course, the word emo and what his favorite sport is. It was a truly great conversation on being a creator with Jake. And you know it. I think you're going to really love it. Uh, thanks to all the Patreon supporters. If you want to support this endeavor, patreon.com slash washed up emo. And also, I just want to mention, I am part of the Double Elvis podcast network that Jake started and could not be more happy to marry a love of hardcore, someone dedicated to storytelling and being alongside them on a network. Learn more about their award-winning podcasts at doubleelvis.com. This is episode 216 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Jake Brennan from Cast Iron Hike and Disgraceland. God, is this Tom? It is. Yeah, baby. We, How are you? We did it. <laughs> we did it. Dude, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if this is a pain in your ass to schedule stuff here, but just so you know, it's not prima donna vibes. It's like running a business where you're completely understaffed and trying to do a gazillion different things. So I I apologize. I mean, it sounds like DIY hardcore. <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. I'm running a label, man. You totally are. <laughs> Just no records, but I'm running a label. <laughs> You're running a label. Okay, so name, the date, and where you are. Sure thing. Uh, Jake Brennan, February 22nd, north of Boston. <laughs> I like it. I like when people give non-specific locations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's safer. It's safer. Uh, it is safer. I get weird <laughs> emails, man. <laughs> north Shore, kid. Me up. North Shore, kid. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh I, it is it is funny that you kind of you know talked about double Elvis and what it sort of turns into and how you have a million different hats. The people that I've spoken to over the years, the similarities of what they're doing now was bred and developed in hardcore, and it's not like anyone told them to go to a show or told them to do it. You had this innate ability, and I just feel like there's a special skill that's learned from hardcore. Have you felt that? from your hardcore days to doing double Elvis in so many different ways. And I think about it now, um, in doing double Elvis and in doing Disgraceland, I think about it more than I ever have. I, you know, when I start, when you're younger and you're in like a hardcore band or you're part of, uh, any sort of alternative scene, but specifically like you're mentioning the hardcore scene and there's a strong DIY ethos ethos, you know, at the time I just felt like I was, doing what everyone else was doing. It was very natural. And then you you grow up and you go into the professional world and you find out it's not very natural at all to most people. It's, in fact, it's the opposite. Um, and I kind of like, you know, midway through my adulthood or professional life, if you want to call it that, I kind of lost sight of that in in different ways. And it for whatever reason, I, I harnessed it fully during Disgraceland and subsequently building Double Elvis. When did you lose, when did you lose sight of it? What was, what did you feel? You know, I felt this and it's entirely in retrospect. It wasn't like I I made this conscious decision, decision to do it this way, but somewhere along the line after Cast Iron Hike, you know, I took a break after Cast Iron Hike and I, and I went back to, to school and and then I got back into music. And when I got back into that, into music, the next time around, I connected with this uh, great producer who ended up being my mentor, this guy, Paul Coldery, produced like Radiohead and, and, and Hole and Pixies and just this legend. And 
I don't know, man. I fell into this thing for I I I was focused on making music, but I was kind of adrift in a in a weird way. And I had this sort of weird attitude that you couldn't really try that hard. And, you know, things would work out if you just put things into the universe and just kind of, you know, did it that way. Like kind of this weird, almost now that I say it out loud, it sounds like this weird hippie ethos, which is so not my character. (laughs) (laughs) But that's kind of what it was. And, you know, it's funny. I was listening to, uh, I was listening to Guy on one of your previous episodes today when I was at the gym. And he talks about going to see minor threat rehearse and how intentional they were about the songwriting, you know, and as like a youthful hardcore band, like someone objectively who doesn't know the scene looking at listening to minor threat, you know, he's kind of making the point, like, you know, you wouldn't make the assumption that everything is so intentional, but it, it clearly was and is. And I lost some of that intention along the way. And I don't know how, but I, you know, I, I sooner or later I woke up, and like I said before, I, I feel like I, I I intentionally harnessed it when I was building Disgraceland. Uh, that's really interesting. And I love that you mentioned the Gee episode because it was an absolute mindfuck the entire time yeah. talking to him because he actually talked about emo. We were in the same room together. Um, there's this, I, I just, one of my favorite days ever on earth um, was doing <laughs> that. But it is interesting that you're sort of getting back into it and I, I had a similar moment where I'm just in these giant companies and you're sort of this cog and you think that's what you're supposed to be doing. And I lost touch with my show. And I mm. think I, I think it kind of goes back to I had such um, uh, resentment of like ownership. And, and I just with my show, I would push back, you know, anybody that would want to be a part of it or anybody that wanted to. And I just was so scared because of the bigger companies just eat you up and they don't care. And it's not this sort of. Right. And I mean, I will say like when I heard that you were interested in the show or you liked it, like I, I it was just, it was almost like meeting someone and being like, you're you're in love. I was like, well, that's where I'm supposed <laughs> to be. That's where <laughs> yeah. well, because of that. It was like one conversation with you and I'm like, yeah, this is this is done. And it's the same thing when someone would come by my office and see a photo of minor threat. They would be like, I got you. Like, right. We're, we're good. Exactly. And, and I, I think I lost my way a little bit with the show um, because I was focused on these other things and my energy was low. And I feel like maybe you have a similar thing where when you got back into it, there there was some other part of your body that sort of was ignited again. Yes, 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 100%. And, you know, I, I really came at it in a way, like, when I was a kid, I was definitely motivated and, and, and uh, you know, co- air quotes around the word ambitious. But, you know, Castner and Ike had ambition for sure. And we wanted to be a band that, that had a big audience and that people liked. And it, it was more out of not wanting to be like, you know, rock stars or whatever, but just to do what we loved and we were becoming young men and adults. So you want to just like, yeah, let's, let's tour. Let's, let's be in a band. Wouldn't it be great if we could like be in a band and that was our job? You know what I mean? Like we'd have to do any other bullshit. And, and, but you're not, I wasn't really serious about it. You know, now I'm, I make a living reading about in often cases, very successful musicians. And I, I can't help but compare their approach when they were far younger than I am now and even younger than I was in Cast Iron Hike. And I, and I just marvel at how intentional they were. And I, I kind of, by the time Disgraceland happened and then, like I said, subsequently Double Elvis, it was like I came at it almost out of desperation. It was like, okay, I need a job, man. Like, I'm getting too old. Like, <laughs> I need to to this is the time I'm either going to figure out how to like develop a labor of love or I'm going to end up doing something I don't love. And unfortunately, you know, being not very unhappy, you know, so I kind of went at it with a little more desperation is a weird word, but that's kind of what it, what it was. You know what I mean? If someone's going to tell you like, Hey man, like you gotta go work at it at this job that you hate, for the rest of your life, like it's good. It it sharpened my focus, you know. Yeah. What do you do? You think that 
that feeling was similar to when you were in the band and sort of trying to kind of go? Because that, uh, you can take us back to that time. It was not as quick or as swift as things go now where yeah. it's a flyer in Worcester and, uh, <laughs> you know, on a, on a pole and you hope to God, you know, people showed up with directions on the flyer. Right. So right. what, what about, what about the, I guess you sort of that desperation and not really, like you said, it wasn't that word exactly, but it's similar to you, you know, being in that band and trying to sort of survive in that, in that time period, which I find very interesting with the nineties being the internet wasn't what it was. It didn't kind of get fast yet. And it had this sort of interesting moment. Um, it was, you knew it before the internet and you, uh, you, you knew it after. So Long, long question, but sort of cast iron hike in that time and desperation. Yeah, there. I didn't feel much desperation then. I, I felt, in a lot of ways, I was conscious of how lucky I was to be part of the hardcore scene and that incredible community. Like, we knew. We knew what was up. Like, we knew because, you know, we were playing all ages shows and part of that world but then we would play like 21 plus shows sometimes in in boston or or you know with other bands like you know bands that were signed to like you know atlantic or or whatever you know and it was an entirely different vibe and i liked the music but i didn't like the vibe so much in the hang and i, I mean i felt like yeah like hard, the hardcore scene is is this incredible community, you know, you're wearing a sick of it all shirt in Minnesota or, uh, you know, London or wherever. And somebody, some dude's going to like, see it, make eye contact with you and at the very least, give you like the hardcore acknowledgement nod. You know what I mean? But there was this binding thing in that world that I was grateful for. And I guess I just kind of thought like, Oh, it's all going to work out. It's all going to like work out somehow. And, you know, we'll put out records and that's what we'll do. And then I ran into the, you know, I ran into the twin sort of brick walls of, you know, air quotes, big business in music, you know, when we signed to victory and just like, uh, is this creatively what I want to be spending my time doing now that the stakes are higher because, you know, we're about to sign a record deal and all this other stuff. And it just became this like very quickly after three or four years, it just became this like other thing that I was like, Whoa, well, the realities of this are not at all what I thought they were going to be. Wow. I mean, I remember again, remember those records coming out, remember those times, what looking back, what, what were some of those things that you just were, were red flags to you? And nothing, nothing, you know, disparaging to anybody, just the normal music industry. Like, what was those red flags that you're like, oh, my God, I don't this is nuts. Well, there was this there's I'll give you one specific and one non-specific thing. Right. So not not to speak yeah, right. disparagingly of, it, of anybody. Of but, course. You know, you agree to sign to a record label and there's a certain amount of courtship and promises and you're, you're told this is what it's going to be. And then the paper comes and the lawyers come and you're like, this is the exact opposite of what this is going to be, you know? And, and that's fine. I'm a, I'm a big boy. And even then I, you know, I was upset, but you know, I, it, I got it, you know, it's just like, it's okay. Well, this is the, the big bad music business. I get that. Um, but then the, in a non-specific way, just, I felt like I felt the passion of being in not just being in that band like being in a band just like quickly run out i was like i don't i remember being on tour with sick of it all and i was like i you know i love sick of it all second time i mentioned him in this interview by the way <laughs> and uh <laughs> and i just remember being very unhappy and being like this is not fun anymore like really not fun all of a sudden. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to do other stuff. I want, before I get older, I want to go back to school. I want to, I want to, I don't know what I want to do in life. Do I even want to be involved in music or the entertainment world? And I felt like I needed to jump and I jumped and in some ways I regretted it, but in other ways I, I didn't regret it at all. I love that. I mean, for you to be present like that and aware, most people push it down. 
down yeah. their, their feelings and go, it's fine. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what, you know, your parents, you know, ingrain into you that work, 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 work. And for you to take a step back was um, very present in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. My bandmates might disagree with you, but, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, it all worked out in the end for everybody. What were your thoughts on emo? back then and and now and um because those things intersected a lot yeah uh, in boston and obviously your shows were you know different sounding things so what were your thoughts on that word i guess first back then well on the word it's funny because i was just i I did this episode on the hip-hop guy uh well uh not really hip-hop but he's actually emo hip-hop is what they called that guy little pete oh right and and i remember you know I, i you know the word emo is thrown around so much when you talk about that guy that I had to, I had to talk about it. And I knew just given my background and, you know, friends of mine who listened to the show that I couldn't like not talk about emo in this context, even though it's like something that happened, you know, in the last five years. So I do this little kind of deep dive in, into the origins of emo and, you know, where it starts with embrace and right, right to spring and, and all the way up to like, you know, Jay June upstairs at the Middle East, you know, and but it the in, re, in relation to the word, I remember very specifically at the time when that word started getting bandied about and when we were kind of like of the age just to to hear it and understand it. I and this was not my original idea. I heard it from someone else, but it really resonated with me. It was like, well, all music's emotional. Slayer is just as emotional as Jawbox or Embrace or Texas is three. It's just a different emotion. And I remember thinking, like, fuck yeah, that's totally right. This is a stupid marketing term. Um, but the music, I mean, I loved a lot of it. You know, I really did. I mean, and I was very close to a lot of friends with a lot of those people in some pretty seminal bands. And yeah, I remember Cast Iron Hike, we recorded our first EP in Brighton at my roommate's house, Brian McTurnan, in the basement. And that's where the Texas is the Reason demo was done, like a couple months later, or maybe less than a year later. And, you know, I remember, like, you know, my another apartment I had on Huntington Ave. I remember you know, dudes from, from Jimmy World stayed there once. It was just like this, you know, everyone was just kind of around, you know, and it was, it wasn't like, oh, this is what we're calling, what we're calling this. This is what other people are calling it. But it was exciting. You know, there was a lot of great music being made then by young kids my age with a ton of energy. And it was just, it was awesome. I mean, to say nothing of being able to actually like play with Fugazi, you know, it was right. pretty heady time. So what were some of those, like you mentioned some of those bands, what were some of those shows that you, I guess, remember fondly? I know it's 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 not like going up to someone at a show and saying, do you remember Grand Rapids? But more of like you going to a show and going like, wow, this is something going on. This is something that is happening right now. Again, maybe to you being present in that moment. Um, Off the top of my head, right a little later, but like Rye Coalition upstairs yes! in the Middle East. Just such a great live band, like an incredible live band. Um, but to say nothing of like, I was thinking about this today. Like I, I legitimately think and I've seen a lot of live music in my life. I think Fugazi is the greatest live band I've ever seen. Like I've never seen anything come close to that, that energy, that authenticity, that control of the audience, that connection with, with the listeners, nothing, nothing has ever, ever come, come close. And to be able to like, play with them in my hometown you know to play with the greatest live band on the planet in my hometown with my band well hell i remember that <laughs> you know <laughs> why 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 for you is that band that for you um i think just for everything i just mentioned and the visceral emotion of it and the and the like like yeah they're authentic and they're energetic and they're they're master musicians in, in their genre and, and but also just wholly unique like there's nothing like that band live there never was before and there hasn't ever been anything since i mean seeing gee on stage was like and then ian like i can still remember this like 
like Ian with his chest puffed out and like sucking in breath and controlling his breath as he's playing guitar and singing and Guy, this like whirling sort of like, you know, this little bomb about to go off any second and dancing like fucking James Brown. At times. It's like out of control, unique. And, and then that band just held, they, they just held this mystique. They still do, you know, and, and just, like I said, nothing like them. I remember moments at their shows that were like surreal. Like my buddy only had one ticket for a show in DC to see them. I was in, it was in college and oh, wow. I remember us just walking up and we were just like, we'll figure it out. And I don't know what happened, but some guy just comes up and he's like, you need an extra? And I was like, yeah. And he just handed it to me and I walked in and with Crazy. my buddy, I was just like, I was, it was just, I'm getting chills. I'm just like, that was like, it just, that's, there's this moment or, and I know we put them on a pedestal, but it comes to my other question of if, if that band and Ian and Gee and Discord, and I just saw Brian, uh, uh, low it from discord this past weekend and it kind of reminded me and i was kind of excited for our chat with all the with all the in, with all the pop things that uh sometimes we intersect with or or pop culture or things that were mainstream is that i know that band has documentaries i know that there's books i know that people always reference them but in a rock hall is not where they will even even think to show up or even accept where do you see them landing in that sort of history book when they list off bands or, you know, cause it gets crowded with things that were mass marketed. Where do you see them, you know, over time? That's a really hard question. I, I think, you know, I, I actually unpopular opinion, but I believe in market economics, but if the market isn't going to let you into the marketplace or if you choose not to be in the marketplace, history is going to write you out of the story in a weird way. And, uh, but then again, I don't know, maybe, maybe technology and the digitization of everything is the great equalizer. And in 200 years when people can just, you know, go to whatever sort of filing system they have in their brain to access all the music in the world, <laughs> maybe, you know, Fugazi will be in the right, their rightful position next to the Beatles and, and Led Zeppelin and Miles Davis and, and, and Bach. And cause they're, they are, they are that there's no two ways around it. They're one of the most influential, um, even if albeit small, given like we, we talked about the marketplace, but one of the most influential bands of all time. And it's really, I really got excited when I listened to that Gee interview and he's talking about Ahmet Erdogan from Atlantic wanting to sign Fugazi and showing up at that gig in New York with Jawbox and, and like kind of like walking in and, and Ian's like, oh, I own my own record label. Why, why, how can I possibly benefit from being with Atlantic Records? This is a great question. But, you know, it, it is really fascinating to think what, that platform would have done for a band with that power. Now I know it would have sunk their, the sort of the covenant they had with their fans, but it is interesting to think, God, what, what would have happened? Because their music just as poppy, some of it as Nirvana or, or a lot of stuff that since has, has gone huge in mainstream. Um, and it's, I'm glad it didn't happen, but it is interesting to think about. I think there's two parallels with that, if, if, if you're okay to go down that road for a second. Of course. Two bands that I think, it's almost it's it's similar to emo, and everyone listening can roll their fucking eyes. It's okay. That's why you pressed play on this episode. It, it's interesting that where emo gets respected and not respected either initially or over time. There's bands that get respected, and I think there's... In that time period, a little bit after probably Ahmet or uh, er Erdogan, you know, tried to sign Fugazi, but like Jawbreaker, remember all the <laughs> bullshit about them signing and blah blah blah, and now everything's fine. Radiohead, right? Radiohead, they're like, right. they you you couldn't like you can't find anybody to not be like, oh yeah, man, you know, like sweet, yeah. And but they're on a major, they were on Capitol. Dude, I, 
uh, just to reinforce your point, and I'll be quick when I cut you off. My my wife is younger than I. She loves Third Eye Blind for some reason. So I went to see Third Eye Blind this summer with her. Like I got her tickets and I went. Just you know, and it was like all hardcore kids there. I'm like, when did this happen? When did Third Eye Blind become a hardcore band? Right. Like what? So yes, to your point, there there are. You know, we forget in hindsight. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, like, even if they did sign and they had those two records and I'm picking on Pitchfork, they give it a 2.3. And then years <laughs> later, they do a, revis- a revisionist history and they give it a 9.8 and then a documentary comes out. Like, there's this time that I just think I, you deal with it with doing these retrospectives, right? You deal, you're constantly looking at history. You know that I love the history of these things. It's funny what time does. And in those right. moments, like Jawbreaker was dead to the indie world. And now they're selling out whatever venue they want. And I just, it's, I want to like look at bands now almost like younger bands and be like, I know that people didn't give a shit about that record. Keep going. Keep right. going. And I, I I know we're kind of hitting on a few things, but I just it's funny that you talked about the market where if you don't want to be in it, there's a part of that. But also if you keep doing it over time, it's not going to matter. But I just think there's so much feedback. Um and maybe there was too with everyone opening up a record review in a magazine or a newspaper, but um I, I just I don't know. I I just I all I tell bands is keep going. Yes, you walked away from something, but like keep making music however you want to or keep being creative. And it just it's frustrating because there's a you hit a wrong time, right? You hit emo at a time when you sound groundbreaking but everyone wants deep V-necks. Like it's just Right. I don't know if you've if you've seen other parallels with that with other genres, but it just seems like Radiohead over time, it just turned into, yeah, everyone loves a man. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it's badass. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And when they when they came out with that first single, as good as it was, that wasn't the vibe. People were like, Who the hell's this band? You know right. what I mean? It wasn't it took until OK Computer, I think, before everyone really jumped on board. But you're I think the larger point you're you're making, if you even take it outside of the realm of music, yeah, is that like you just got to continue to show up in life. You have to be an active participant always in your life. And you cannot, there's no, there's no version of this life where you sit back and let the world come to you and everything works out. And even the, the, the most sort of indifferent seeming irreverent seeming artists of all time, your Bob Dylan's, your Kurt Cobain's, they were back to what we were saying earlier, wildly intentional and they just made it seem like they weren't and they were, they were ambitious and they showed up. And now, now think about Ian McKay and just what a, what a monster creator he is off stage as well. And <laughs> what would have happened if he got the Rolling Stones deal that Ahmed Erkin promised him at Atlantic what he would have done with a record label with that kind of distribution. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure some part of his mind thinks like, God, what would I have done? Um, but he was probably right because in not doing that deal, he, if he did it, he wouldn't have been able to continue to be himself, you know? So I guess it all makes sense in the end. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, I think the long-term approach, there's that excitement, the, oh, this label, or they're going to do X, Y, and Z. And I think there's still a tendency and, you know, hearing about bands breaking up and something not working out. And I know that that's as old as time. I just, it's like, I want to, I don't know. I feel like, like you need to take a test to drive, you know, I feel like there's like some sort of class. I just want everyone to, I know they do it for like the NBA. Like you get signed before you go to a team. They like tell you, they're like, Hey, so uh, you're going to get a lot of money in your bank account. Don't blow it on stupid cars. Right. I want to sort of like, just be like, it's, you're going to hear a lot of bullshit, but you need to keep making what you want to make. And that will turn into things that you don't realize yet. You know, me listening right. to Cast Iron Hike 25 years ago, do you think I would be like, oh, I'm going to, Jake and I are going to chill on a random Wednesday afternoon, you know, like, <laughs> no, but that wasn't, that wasn't my goal, but over time it developed into that and I, and maybe people have different, I'm just more, 
I guess uh, maybe we're similar where we're just a, a, a little bit more DIY about it. Like I don't really have a goal of being huge. That's not really my goal. It's just kind of to subsist and to mm-hmm. continue storytelling. And I feel like that's kind of with you with your show. It's like these stories are going to live. You're putting it in this new format. And I wanted to kind of turn to that. Like, is that what was that first sort of thought of that show? And how have you sort of been able to keep it like Ian kind of keep it to what you want to do as it gets bigger and bigger? Well, the first thought was, I, I hate to be so crass about it, but I, I needed the job. <laughs> I needed to figure out what I was going to be even bigger than that. I needed to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And we're, we had a kid and I had a job and I knew I wasn't good at it. And I knew it wasn't for me. And I asked my wife and I asked one of my good friends at the time, Adam, I asked them both. I was like, if you could pay me to do one thing, what would it be? And they both had the same exact answer, hand to God. They both said, Oh, in different ways, you know, I'll give you Adam's version. He said, I would just put you in the vocal booth and have you just tell me stories. I was like, huh, okay. And at the same, my wife said the same exact thing. She's like, you should, you should tell stories in some way. Like maybe you like write a book or something like that. I'm like, what? How the hell am I going to write a book? Well, fast forward, literally two years after that conversation, I published my first book with Grand Central Hachette and you know, but I just said, okay, I, ha- I happen to receive that feedback from them at a time when podcasting was breaking through a little bit. It wasn't quite mainstream, but I was certainly hooked. And I, and I thought, okay, well, what podcast do I want to listen to? Does it exist? And it didn't. So that's what I ended up creating. And in the, in the success of it, I feel, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like I'm driving to be successful. It's more like I feel I've struggled so long for so hard in my life to, to find something to do that I actually love that is creative. But now that I have the opportunity to do it, I feel obligated to do it and to do it as best as I can and to make sure that I am fully considerate of every opportunity before I take it or pass on it. And I feel obligated to create a place for even if it's just a small little place, you know, like we were joking earlier, it's like small little indie label, you know, like where I can give opportunities to other creators and whether they're employees of, of ours or, or other creators like you that we partner with and work with. It's, I do feel some weird obligation to do that because I don't have to do it, you know, in a lot of ways, my life would be less complicated and, and easier. And I'd have more time to, I don't know, have a hobby, whatever those are. But I feel this sort of, like I said, this it's this weird obligation. And I use that word in, in the best possible way. It's not a negative. It's like I've, I feel grateful that I, that, I, that I can actually do this and that I can help other people do it as well. What, over time with Disgraceland, have you sort of been able to keep it going? You and I both have shows that have been on for a long time. <laughs> Yeah. How have yep. how have you sort of kept? I have my answer, but I this this is your show. So what what's sort of your way that you've kept it um, fresh? I'm constant. I just had this conversation with my friend Tiller like ten minutes ago, and he's a filmmaker, and we both are. We've realized in this conversation, you know, trying to tell. If I'm going to tell a story, I want to tell it in a way that is new somehow that I can find like all, all the stories I've told, like, you know, what are you going to, I just released an episode yesterday on ACDC. Like, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast and knows nothing about Disgraceland is going to roll their eyes and go, well, ACDC, you know, I know about ACDC, but I promise you, you don't know this story about ACDC. So I'm constantly trying to find a fresh angle or insight or something that's going to excite me. Um, and you know, that's that's the short answer. I'm sure I could find five five other answers as well, but that's the one that that uh, is most prevalent in my mind. Can I tell you my ACDC what, story? Well, I want to hear your version of oh why what make what keeps it fresh. Yeah, I and then I'll tell my ACDC story because you'll it'll blow your mind. The the I realized quickly and was the I it needed to be simple 
and evergreen. I remember thinking about it being evergreen for a really long time. I mean, I started in 2012. When did your show start? 2018. We just hit five years about two weeks ago. Yep. Congrats. Um, Thank you. In 2012, I remember being like, okay, there's none of my heroes being interviewed. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I was on radio or I did radio. I I could talk to bands. I wasn't intimidated. Let me try it. And then I just remember being like, it needs to be so simple that I can do this in a way that someone could start 10 years from now and start at the beginning and it not feel dated. And that's, it's funny. Someone just joined my discord, um, which it's just a dollar to join. You get to hang out and ask me questions. And there's a bunch of people on there. And this person was like, Hey, I just found your show. I'm starting from episode one. Wow. And now there's 200 plus episodes and they're commenting about stuff and I'm letting bands know like, and it's this person that, Again, it it doesn't matter when you start, you're able to dive in. And I think that's that that way that people sometimes give me critiques about being a gatekeeper. I like to make jokes, but it's not about gatekeeping. It's more about like that's sh- this show is you found emo. Here's 213 episodes for you to learn. Um, and I'm just the medium for that. So that's that's how I've been able to sort of keep it. Yeah, and you're and you're creating this sort of, uh, I don't want to say no, you're breathing life into this, this style and genre of music, this niche genre of music that is also going to continue with every every episode that you release. It's like it's just this like it's like compounding interest. You know, it's just the snowball rolling down the hill. It's going to continue and continue and continue. And to your point, creating content that is evergreen makes that possible if you're you know doing a news show or something you know a sports related podcast you don't have that advantage at all um i will do the acdc thing because you'll find this hilarious a friend yeah, what happened a friend works at sony with acdc he's done all their records and works on their catalog with them and he told me this story that uh angus um was in new york and um, it, it, they lost his guitar. Oh my God. <laughs> so he's flying to New York for something and they lost his guitar. So he calls the guy and he was like, you know, Angus calls my friend and said, you know, is there like a guitar center or something around here? Like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's just go. And he doesn't show up in his outfit. Okay. He's mm. just Angus. And so he goes to, I believe it was Guitar Center. It might have been Sam Ash, you know, that New York where there's like all those records or those, you know, music stores on that one street. So he points up to his fucking guitar. <laughs> his signature model? <laughs> yes. And says, because that's what he actually plays. He pointed up to it and said, I'd like to play that. The guy was like, okay. So they go to a practice room and I shit you not, he started fucking playing ACDC songs on it. And the wow. gu- And the guy goes, man, that's, that's that's really good and he doesn't say a thing and he doesn't realize it's angus and angus buys it and walks out with it and plays it that night and the guy had no idea that it was angus young (laughs) amazing that's so good oh that poor guy Nuts. I, he didn't, you know, play some other song. He literally started playing Thunderstruck just to make sure that the intonation was good. Right, right. He wants to make sure he can get through the, the gig with the right tool. Yeah. So anyway, um, what about being roommates with McTurnan? That was wild. That whole house was wild. That was, I mean, it wasn't wild like you know, like like MTV Spring Break wild. It was just a wild experience. There was McTurnan. Sweet Pete, who's a legendary hardcore character, um, lived there as well. Um, Pete from Mouthpiece lived there. I think Ben Chusett lived there, who was in Battery as well. John LaCroix, I don't, he didn't live there, but he was always there. My friend Rama, who started Big Wheel Recreation, Big Wheel Records, he was there. Um, it was just all of us living in this house. I think when a Castor and Hike recorded, yeah, when Castor and Hike recorded there, I wasn't living there yet. Um, I moved in maybe like six months later. <laughs> That's how I roll. I show up in a studio to record. You can't get rid of me. I'm going to move in. <laughs> um, I came really good friends with Brian. And then we actually, uh, we lived together later in another apartment in Alston. But it was just this this great house where there were there were people coming by all the time from different bands. And, and 
I mean, in like heroes of mine, you know what I mean? Like I remember, <laughs> here's the funny story. So years later in Cast Iron Hike, well, not years, like maybe two years from living in that house, I was playing, Cast Iron Hike was playing in Northampton with um, Hanson, which was Tom Capone from Quicksand's band at the time. And I ran into Tom, who I'd never met before. And I was like, hey, man, I wrote you this letter, like, two years ago because you know you write you write your your hardcore, absolutely <laughs> your hardcore stars letters back in the day i wrote one uh, to weird al and he never wrote back so <laughs> and and he was like i know i got your letter he's like i wrote you back no one writes me letters so i remember and i i fucking wrote back i'm like what and i ran into some dudes who lived in that house later i was like any of you assholes fucking gives you a self-addressed letter from tom capone and nabbit and sure enough Someone in the house recognized his name. I'm not going to name him now and call him out. And he stole the freaking thing. And and he took the letter. He read it. He never told me about it. Wow. <laughs> but I remember that house was like where I remember sitting around the kitchen table and and literally like the guys from 10 Yard Fight talking about ten, like the band they were start They were going to start. And it just started as this thing that they were they were talking like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we had this song and this song? We did this, you know, we came out to this music and yada. And sure enough, you know, a year later they're doing it and then they're blowing up and they're massive. And it was just, <laughs> it was, I don't want to say it was a joke because they were very serious about it, but it was all, everything was sort of handled in good humor and sort of, you know, by the seat of your pants. And it, it you know, that was the beauty of hardcore. Like kids knew how to get shit done. And you could, you could take something from this thing you talked about around the kitchen table and turn it into this international hardcore band in a matter of well, 12 months and that happened in that house that, well that's when you talk about getting shit done that's what i actually liked about going to those shows early on for me and seeing the distro seeing someone make something uh handmade that they had 10 for sale or seeing a zine or seeing and it's not just oh i can do that it was that these people are actually doing it and they're mm -hmm. they're in the way that it's sort of I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like when you knew someone in the science class that knew a little bit more than you. So you sat closer to them. So you got assigned with them. That's what I did. Um, yeah. I, I knew I needed to align myself with this because in those years, you're kind of, you know, it was slacker or, you know, whatever. I'll figure it out. But there's this thing right. of like, I need to get out. And a little bit different for me because I was in a small town, but being in Boston, you had that other energy of all these colleges, all these mm -hmm. bands going on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like there's almost like its own energy in Boston, not just from the hardcore scene, but just that energy of that college town. Yeah, for sure. You got kids coming in from all over the world. And, you know, you know, and we had Rama, who I lived with, started Big Will, Big Will, well, it was Big Will Records in the beginning, became Big Will Recreation. And that was 10 Yard Fight. Cast Iron Hike. He did stuff with Jimmy Eight World, Pieball, The Hives later. And then there was Aaron Turner, who was living right around the corner from us. And he was, he started Hydrahead. And then you've got, you know, Jake Bannon, who started Death Wish from Converge. And all this stuff was like all guys we knew. And a lot of them coming into the city to go to school. Like we were going to Northeastern, but there was a, we hung out with kids from Massar and, and BU. And, you know, it's, you'd go to these, some of these shows and they'd be like little DIY malls set up where there's just tables and tables of, of, of merch, even like from just distros, like kids who had distros who were like, Oh, here's this, like, you know, this is where you're going to get maximum rock, the new maximum rock and roll. Cause you're not going to get it at Newbury comics yet. Or, or this is where you're going to get this record by, I don't know, this band from the seven inch from this band from LA that hasn't quite you know played here yet. Or, you know what I mean? And it was just, all that stuff, I think, I don't know what it was like in Vermont, but I felt like it was, I don't even know if it was independent of Boston or being in a city because frankly, I feel like that sort of commerce DIY thing was kind of everywhere in the hardcore scene, right? Yeah. No, I mean, the same thing. I go to, and you might've had tables. I had a, a table, but it was the one kid up there that had X, Y, and Z. And yeah, the record store might've had stuff, but this guy had right. x y and z and you could it just and they they it was that connection that they were able to kind of explain okay this is what's going on here you know yes. we had a lot of boston bands coming up and like they would bring stuff and i just kind of 
I would have, you and I would have flourished now if we were that age or this this age back right then now we would have flourished in a different way but i really loved that you know you're going to the show you found out about something and it's sort of you left your mark on a town or you left your mark on a on a city that um i think is i don't know it feels like it was in the air still when you like left town and people were um, aware of it and it's not just about being present and looking down on your phone and we can talk shit like that like old people but I do think that that being present for those things and um, it's not just rose colored I'm sure there was absolute dumb shit going on back then absolutely stupid shit oh, of course but from you talking about sort of the information flow I really enjoyed that and I loved being close to Boston because you would just I'm like what the fuck is coming out of there Right. And there's right. just so many people and so many sounds. So I, I think you're pretty lucky um, being able to, uh, you know, be around that much. Yeah, I and I'm very conscious of how lucky I was. And I, I was I had a great growing up because I live you know, 35 miles from the city with my mom. But my dad lived in in Cambridge or in Newton various times of my childhood. So by the time I was 14, I was trying to get into the city as much as possible. And I had a very easy way to do that because my dad lived here and it was like, you know, I mean, I saw sick of it all 1989, third time I brought them up on this podcast, by the way. Sorry. I love <laughs> sick of it all. I 1989. Like I think it was like the week yes. after blood, sweat and, and no tears came out. And it was, I remember them throwing records into the, into the crowd. It was like, and it was one of the first hardcore matinees I'd ever been to. You know, and everything from that to seeing Jeff Buckley's first show in Boston ever to like, you know, 10 people at Johnny D's, you know, it's just like, I think I didn't know it then because you never really know in the moment. But now I feel I feel so blessed to just have been able to to see these things and experience have these experiences that were very meaningful for me at a very formative time in my life that I still feel the influence of almost daily. What about music storytelling hasn't been done yet? God, that's a tough question, man. That's a tough question. I think for me, there's this accepted narrative to almost every sort of big music personality that's out there. And that just sort of the, 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 the strength of time sort of tattoos that narrative onto everybody's brain. But when you, when you dive into these stories and you, and you research them, there's so much nuance. And you can really, if you can really tap into uh, the human element of these people who made this incredible music and were around during the time that this incredible music was made, doesn't matter what era it is, if you can really tap into the human element of it, in, in, in the nuance and the in the contradictions, you can you can find a way to express the truth of the story in in a in a way that is incredibly compelling. And dude, you do that like you, because of your position in in this genre of music and what you've seen and what you've gone through and what your experience have been and the way that you think about things and, and can contextualize these conversations that you're having, you're presenting the truth of, of, of this, uh, this genre in a way that is different than the way I do it, but still it's the same, it's the same muscle. You're, you're getting at that human side of it and that allows for this different type of music storytelling that you know if you ask someone what's the story if you ask 10 people what's the story of the rolling stones or acdc or promise ring or uh i don't know discharge whoever it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter what scene you're in there's a there's a there's a straight a to a to z narrative but if you were there or if you do the research and enough research like i said you can crack into that human element and you can get to this this very compelling truth it makes for great storytelling. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm I'm not going to name any names or bring up stuff. But I have a giant bullshit meter, not just from living in New York City and having people come mm -hmm. up to you, and um, I'm sure you have the same muscle in Boston about knowing when something's sketchy coming up near you. But I have this giant other bullshit meter for when I read something that I was around for or I was a part of deeply. 
and it reads like Wikipedia or it right. reads like, oh, this song sounds like this. And they use 17 verbs and adjectives and all of a sudden the record, it's like a record. I was never interested in that. I'm like, tell me, tell me what the, like you said, the human part of it. Tell me what is about this thing and help me contextualize it for someone that wasn't there instead of you know um sort of like you said the like the tropes of doing a review of a record or or talking about a time unless you have a lot of people that were there or you researched it your narrative or your perspective um should not be there i'll give one last example when i talk about the 80s i shut the hell up i wasn't <laughs> around i was 2 i was 3 i was 4 you know talking to tony right. talking to tony from moss icon or talking to you know gee i shut the hell up because it's not, I didn't know, and I don't know the under. I ask a lot of questions, and I just feel like sometimes the storytelling has a uh, a perspective from the person interviewing versus listening. And um, I joke about editing myself out of my own show. I do a lot because I don't need to be in that as much as the person on and you'll notice that when this comes out, everyone will be like, "Where was Tom?" But it, it, the <laughs> I just think that's so important that you were there. And I just, I, I have a giant problem and bullshit up when I just read something and I'm like, you were never there. I don't understand right. why this is, you know, or you didn't interview everybody or uh, why was it one perspective? I want to hear from a woman. I want to hear from someone that was there. I want to hear it. I just, I don't know. I get very frustrated. Well, <laughs> I, I, I will say, I will say I have been, I have been criticized for that exact thing. Really? Oh yeah. But I've also been, uh, you know, virtually high five. I'll give you two examples. I caught a lot of shit from somebody in the punk scene who was there the night Sid Vicious died. And I'm not going to say his name. doesn't matter. Point is, and I, you know, I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I fucking nailed this. <laughs> I did so much research I know exactly what my point of view is and I can back it up and I did not feel bad about it one bit. Um, and, and that's just, you know, I, I'm telling stories that happen in often time, often cases before I was born, you know what I mean? So if I, if I want to get to a compelling story, I have to do a ton of research and consider different points of view and the nuance before I, inject my point of view, uh, on, onto it, which I do. Sometimes I editorialize, um, I, I, I take liberties, I do all kinds of things, but I never stray outside of the truth of the story. Um, another example where I got the opposite of shit and I got this twice from two different people who were there, one like literally sitting at the table when I told the, the story of, uh, John Lennon at the Troubadour at the Smothers Brothers show where mm -hmm. he got thrown out. I heard from um, one of the guys who was literally at the table. He was dating Pam Greer at the time. And he, uh, this guy, his last name was Kaplan. I can't think of his first name. He, he was the creator of Welcome Back, Cotter. But he, uh, he emailed me out of the blue. He's like, I was there literally at the table. You nailed it. And I, I subsequently, um, when I interviewed Elton John, I heard, I heard something similar from him. He wasn't there that night, but he told me, my depiction of John was, was right on. And that was like, okay, I'm on to something. And John Lennon is like, to combine what you're saying and combine what I was saying earlier about trying to get to the heart of the human element of the story, John Lennon is the perfect example of one of the most contradicting characters in, in like world history, never mind music history. He was a pacifist, but he was violent. He was wildly in love with his wife, but he was, you know, an adulteress. He, you know what I mean? For every yin, there is a yang. And, and that, to me, like, if you're going to say John Lennon was violent, it's the truth. But you're going to get a lot of shit from a lot of people who love John Lennon. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it, if, if you take all the sides of the character and you consider them, and, and that's what informs your point of view – you're still going to land near the truth and it's not going to matter in my opinion, if you were there or you weren't. Fuck. Yeah. I know we have, we're, we're close on time. I, uh, I need you. I'm to, here for you, Tom. I need you to rank <laughs> your sports teams in order of love. 
Oh man, really? Yeah. Be a wild card, wild card right now. Like, well, we like. I mean, we got to talk. My this. hot new, my hot new sports team girlfriend right now, like that I've <laughs> that I've got a I've got a sports boner for. Yeah. Is is Legacy Motor Club, Jimmy Johnson, NASCAR. I've fallen in love with NASCAR in the last twelve months. I went to the Daytona Five Hundred last week, um, and it was incredible. And I'm just, I'm completely compelled by this sport. I can't believe I am, but I am. Um, so Can I, so I, high on the list. so that's fantastic. And everyone on the podcast is going to go, wait a minute, Tom has a story. Right. Of course I do. So I went to school in North Carolina. That oh, is, wow. Okay. And I worked at a pizza restaurant and on weekends when I worked, I was the assistant manager. Um <laughs> You, sure you weren't assistant to the manager or just assistant? Oh, dude, I ran the place. I ran the place. <laughs> nice. um, it was awesome. Um, the weekend you put on Fridays was Truck Series. Saturday, mm-hmm. Saturday Xfinity. was was you know the the uh, you know the minor league, and then Sundays yeah. was uh, you know NASCAR. And obviously, when it was on during you know the night or if it was, it was, but anytime daytime, that's what got asked to get put on the TV. And I had a girlfriend at the time that knew NASCAR, and I learned a shitload about it um, watching with her. And so it was funny being in New York and NASCAR was on or something in a random TV on the small TV at a bar. And I would be able to like comment or something. And, and there's a, it isn't just drive fast and turn left. And there's strategy. There's like all these sort of rivalries and who fucks with who. And (laughs) there's nothing like it. It's, It's truly exhilarating. I never got it growing up in Massachusetts. I never you got never it. You never went to like a. No, there was never a, went to Loudon or in New Hampshire. Are I never, you joking? I never went, no, nothing. I mean, I you know it was. It's funny you ask this question about sports because it's it changes over time for me. Like I'm a fan of all the Boston teams, but I you know there's a time in my life where I was obsessed with the Red Sox before they won it. And it wasn't just a red side, it was baseball and baseball history. And, 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 and there's a time in my life where like, I remember my wife went to the hospital to have my son, my first son. And I was like, Oh man, I wouldn't be upset if it was tomorrow. Cause I really want to see that Patriots playoff game today. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that thought did cross my mind, but, but it's, it's, it switches over time. So to, to, you know, if you know NASCAR, if, if Jimmy's Legacy Motor Club is the hot girlfriend at the time, I love that. I say, I say Bruins number two. Really? Yeah. Do you know what someone yeah. told me about the Bruins and uh, and the Garden that they sell double the amount of alcohol as Celtics games? Oh, I totally believe that. <laughs> I one hundred percent believe that. Bruins fans are unlike any, any fans, and they can handle their alcohol too. They can you know absolutely. <laughs> Exactly. Um, and then I'd have to go uh, Patriots. And then I'm, I'm really upset with the Red Sox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, absolute trash. I'm a fly by night Celtics fan. Really? I, I Why? I just it's just basketball. I don't enjoy watching it on on television. So it's hard to get into. But the playoffs come and I get sucked in. I actually went to uh, I went to a, a, a finals game last year at the Garden, which was a lot of fun. It was amazing. But um, yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be a Celtics fan because that would be an insult to real, real basketball fans. But I do root for them when, when okay. necessary. All right, good. My dad, my one birthday present, my dad would buy scalp tickets to the garden and we would go once a year. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So in Vermont, you, you, you must end up like just all new England teams. Is that the way it works? Yeah. And for some reason, my dad's brother brought me to a Mets game. And mm-hmm. it was the cocaine era. So that was mm-hmm. fun as hell. So I'm Mets and then everything else, New England. Yeah, I got into the I got into the Mets this year. I did because really? I was so pissed at the Red Sox. Yeah, Come like, on board kid, because I... we want the same thing. The Mets fans yeah. and Red Sox fans want the same thing. Which Yankees, is what, cocaine? Fuck the Yankees. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, Yankees suck. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. This was great, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, dude. I love what you're doing, and I'm so happy for you. You're, You're killing it. 